you're here today with another book review episode. This is episode number 71 in our Penguin Little Black Classics collection. It's a review collection. We're going through all of Penguin's 80 pieces of world literature, brief pieces to be fair, but 80 pieces of world literature, and we are trying to review them all. And I can say at this point, Amanda, with some confidence that we the end is in sight. We can see the ending here. Yeah, so close. 71 out of 80. That means this is the first installment of the final 10, which feels like a really arbitrary measurement, but whatever. (laughs) For some reason, it feels significant to say it that way. The final count. I guess that's because countdowns begin around 10, isn't it? That's That's probably why. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say something about counting in multiples of 10 feels very, I don't know. Even numbers are always fun to count in, but yeah, 10 feels especially coherent or something to me, but uh, let's chalk it up to that. Joining me, and she needs no introduction, but she's getting one anyway, is <laughs> podcast co-host Amanda on the other end. Amanda, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Are you ready to read pornography? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Wait, are we going back to the erotica? Yeah, what episode was that again? It was like two or three episodes back. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a Roman guy. I forgot his name already. Not his poetry. Carilla, Carillus, Car- Carillus. Okay, well, let's go with that one. Catalyst, <laughs> Catalyst or something? Catalyst, that's what it yeah, was. Good job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we will not be revisiting that. The reason I make that joke is because the author we are covering today for the review, D.H. Lawrence, was an English author who was censored throughout his career and wrote novels. I know, um, is it Lady Chatterley's Lover? Is it probably yeah. his most famous one that deals quite in some depth uh, with sex and the emotional consequences thereof? other scandalous issues. He wrote explicitly about things that perhaps high or proper society would not have accepted. And I think his reputation was rather tarnished for that reason, though, I mean, as far as I could tell, and to be honest, I'd never encountered his work before this, but as far as I could tell from our light research in the uh, research department of Wikipedia, I don't think he was ever censored out of his career. Wasn't he able to sustain his career throughout his life? Yeah, he was able to write, um, through his life he was exiled for a time uh oh and stuff but like i think that was more political stuff okay but maybe related to his writing so that's just at the top of these reviews we do like to do a brief rundown for you the unacquainted listener uh, with who we're writing about or discussing what we're discussing and why we're discussing it so that's who it's dh lawrence a famous writer kind of controversial in his time he also had held some views, uh, was probably a fascist, or at the very least, the accusation would be kind of elitist. It sounds like he was pretty skeptical of the working folks and had kind of a, in his mind, had kind of an aristocratic mindset towards you know the public and towards societal division and stuff. I know that it said there was some criticism after his life, after he died, that he was basically a, a fascist misogynist, but the misogyny accusation is in a particularly odd one and me having no depth in terms of his his works and his body of work can't comment on this at all but it seems odd considering he's also famous for writing insightfully about some female main characters of his i'm not sure if you can comment on that or have any opinion at all i don't Um, have one no i haven't read uh the only thing that i read by him was sons and lovers um and i didn't even finish that because i read it for um ap lit so sure, 12th sure. grade and I'd started, I think I read the first chapter and I was like, I can't, I can't even with this book. So I put it down and I never sure. picked it up again. 
What what could you not even? Do you remember? I don't even remember things from that long ago sometimes. Uh, yeah, so his writing style reminded me a lot of um, James Joyce's novel writing, where it's like, mm-hmm. this is how I feel about James Joyce, is I love his short stories because they are really beautifully written and very insightful and just like really complex. But in a novel, it can feel like you're just being... Uh, like bombarded almost with these ideas and it feels overly complex to where it's like okay I get it I know that you're an artist I understand that you uh, have these great ideas but it's oh it's like you're trying to overwhelm me with your genius almost you know mm-hmm. um, yeah and that's how I felt with Sons and Lovers it's like and reading the short stories I like his short stories a lot and then Maybe I'll go back to Sons and Lovers just to try to like wade through it, but I, I have a feeling it's like James Joyce to me. Yeah, it's certainly dense. What we read specifically, uh, um, correct me if I'm wrong. These were travelogue writings, though. These right, were not they're not fiction. even short stories. Yeah, yeah, though they do read like fiction. We'll get into the stylistic elements later. I think that's a fair comparison point as short story because while these don't have plot per se, it's more just character observation. These mm-hmm. travels from his times in Italy are. I mean, they're quite observant to the point of that he meanders kind of. There's broad thoughts on here that are easily categorizable under philosophy. He has some thoughts about the country and the history of its people. So he's kind of a sociologist, anthropologist in a way. Mm -hmm. He's kind of lightly, indirectly political, too. He talks a bit about the United States as some of the people he meets from Italy have traveled there. So it's kind of all over the place. But yeah, it's roughly a travel, a collection of travel writings when he was clearly in Italy for a while. Mm hmm. Why would we read D.H. Lawrence then, Amanda? What's your speculation there? Um, I think because he's uh, lauded by so many other great writers that have been canonized. And so if um, so, that means that if these writers are saying that he's an amazing writer, then and and that he has somehow influenced them, then then obviously we want to kind of see what what's what's so amazing about him if all these other amazing writers love him. Yeah, there's this expression in, I feel like I've heard this in music before, specifically about rap, but I'm sure this applies to any creative field where it's that person is your blank's favorite blank. So in rap, it's like, oh, I like this one rapper. You wouldn't know him, but every rapper says they're his, he's their favorite. So it's kind of like a person who within their creative community is considered the best or like the favorite or is admired, mm-hmm. but outsiders to that community wouldn't know him or her. Mm-hmm. And so he, I guess it does kind of have that reputation where I don't know if D.H. Lawrence achieves like popular canonization, but it's kind of like the person who's in the know, he's that person for that person, right. if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, that's kind of his reputation too. Even I, he's an author that I'm stunned you encountered him in high school. He feels like that kind of college level. This is a person that outside of a college hall, you wouldn't have to encounter him, that his work is just sort of elevated in that way. Uh, right. Strikes me like that. I mean, that frankly, the Penguin Little Black Classics have had a ton of authors that I would throw into that camp. Dante and others, but mm-hmm. yeah, he kind of seems to be in that echelon too. So certainly has that reputation. Yeah. Let's jump into the review officially then. We've got the the formal business out of the way. Now we get down to the science of reviewing this book, which again was three collections of three different short travelogue kind of observations. Mm-hmm. Why don't you begin us this week, Amanda, with the one sentence simile review. What was reading this like? Uh, so I'm going to show my nerd right now. 
Um, sure. <laughs> you mean you're on a book club podcast, <laughs> an ongoing 71 episode? <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't do it for the listener. They don't know. I guess. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Not to disappoint you guys, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I said, reading this is like playing D and D with a really amazing DM, like like a DM kind of like Matt Mercer style DM. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I said that because the uh, with a great DM, you can visualize the setting, right? Because they just set, not only they, they use uh, great imagery and stuff like that with their words, right? Because D&D is about words and your imagination. Um, but it's also uh, the ability to set a, a mood, Right. So okay, there's yeah. that. And then um, also the the NPCs. Right. So you get these NPCs and like because, you know, you're playing a game, you're like, man, how does this person play into like the overall story and da 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 da? And how what am I going to see with this person? And really, the DM is just like, you know, maybe making it up as he goes and has no real plans for anything. You, but you don't know that. Um, so it's like trying to place these characters into some kind of like understanding within your own mind uh, and within that setting and just tying everything all together and just trying to tie it together um, from somebody else's story, but trying to fit it into your own understanding. That's where I think my, the analogy you've drawn and we'll get into the criticism later, but that's where it would, that's where I don't know if I, I believe that analogy as much as you believe it. Cause I found some parts of this to be incoherent, but we'll dig into that in the quotes though. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I think in terms of creating a mood and setting, it's quite striking. And yeah, yeah, I think depending on what you go in with in terms of your expectations for this writing, maybe it is exactly what you want. Maybe, it, you know, it, I guess it just depends on your expectations, right? Yeah. My, my analogy or my simile rather is going to be a bit different. Uh, let me paint a quick, quick little word picture here. Imagine you're in a small room that's overcrowded, quite overcrowded. A lot of young 18, 19 year old bodies in this room. <laughs> it's a hazy room. There's a towel by the bottom of the door, perhaps mm. uh, trying to trap in some of this haze. Mm-hmm. And you are passing around a two to three foot bong. It's filled <laughs> with marijuana. It's already lit. It's been lit for a while. And you're just taking a big old rip off of that bong in your freshman dorm room. There's a Boondock Saints poster on the wall. Really I don't nice. know. That was what I had. You know, that's a classic cliche freshman cool guy Mm -hmm. move i think i had a braveheart poster on there too mel gibson a lot i didn't know about him my (laughs) freshman year of college (laughs) big ass mel gibson man i hope i didn't seem anti-semitic in my freshman year fuck (laughs) it's things to reflect on later but you can picture the scene there's a there's an idling video game console in the background there's a bunk bed set up there's a refrigerator that has a large bottle of jack daniels in it all of this i set up just to say (laughs) as someone who has never even uh, smoked marijuana, but has been a part of the culture quite extensively, I would say. This feels like somebody taking a huge bong rip and then just going. And then like for the first time, they finally have their philosophical reflection about colors. You know, that's such mm-hmm. a cliched, I'm high as hell. Let me just think about this out loud for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this kind of had that feeling to me just because of the wandering nature of some of the description, which... Again, I'm sure we'll dive into plenty, but it certainly had that meandering, rather insightful at times. That's the thing. I mean, the the cliches or the jokes are only there because they're kind of true. And that's that sometimes when you're in that altered state, 
you do strike on something quite profound. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you just wander and it becomes, you know, a silly adventure of the mind. But this one, I think it, it would, had more intrigue than not, or it had more like revelation than not. I, I don't mean to make it sound silly, but man, he goes off sometimes. He just wanders, <laughs> it seems. <laughs> Yeah, so I, yeah. I, we'll get into the coherence part because I know that our two similes are kind of at odds, but we'll see how they reconcile. I like your simile. I think um, your simile, I think for me, would fit with especially stream of consciousness, that style of writing. Yeah, right. Um, yes. I would say I would modify yours to say it would be like afterwards and they remember some pieces of that philosophical yeah. wandering and then they really hone in on it. I think right. that's what D.H. Lawrence would be like for me. Yeah. Yes. Though, again, we'll dig in because there are some things in here that feels like the first half of a treatise with no back half. But mm-hmm. we'll get into that. Let's make some connections. We'll try and make this um, selection or writing relevant to you, the 2020 listener, we assume. Maybe 2021. Who knows? Let's keep this going. <laughs> and our connection was basically the same, Amanda. So why don't you throw yeah. it out there? We we do make and I know I brought this logistical production point up before but we make all of our stuff separately and then bring it together so when things overlap which they don't always or even often but it's worth pointing out so we made the same connection would you go with so i pointed out that uh, the u.s is currently barred from traveling to a lot of countries Mm -hmm. right now i think almost like most countries right we're like not allowed to travel to (laughs) sure if we're not now just wait for the winter yeah yeah, soon (laughs) yeah but um so if you enjoy um traveling and you can't travel or if you're just interested in other cultures um especially from somebody else's point of view then i think if you're interested in travel and in finding out about other cultures this is a pretty pretty good read this is something that you can connect to yeah, the only thing I added on slightly was just that sometimes I feel like the internet has flattened a lot of the, he comes across as, he broadly generalizes and says some things that if he were in a college lecture hall in like a history class, he would be immediately put down for, but he's not really trying to be that, I don't think. I don't think he's trying to be an anthropologist or a historian or something. Right. And so- it just contextually, it kind of flows and makes sense. But anyway, the, the only reason I bring that up is to say that the internet would refute a cut, like just some Googling would make some of his points seem kind of odd and would just make me think like, what what are you on about? Like, have you never heard of this other place? Or like, he talks about Italy, like it's a this ancient place. And it's like, man, it's a pretty newish country. I mean, I know there's been people there a while, but it, so there's just certain things that I can't anyway. And so it just, it feels like he has observations about other places. He's clearly intrigued by people that he views as not him, not himself. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the the internet, I think, throws a wrench in some of this and how much, you know, how truly foreign something can seem when you can read a synopsis of it and get a gist. I mean, and I think he would actually have a great roundabout way to get around that because he speaks in the moment so deeply. So his best descriptions are so intensely in the moment that I think it's, the feeling of that for him would extend to beyond some academic observation. Mm-hmm. At any rate, I think we've danced around the quotes for long enough. We should probably just dive into it because there's a lot to unpack <laughs> with his style and with his, yeah, just way of approaching his topics and subjects when he's traveling in Italy. Do you mm-hmm. want me to begin? I know I've spoken at length here about it. I should probably just give an example of one. Yeah. So I'll pull one that, um, let me go right for the bong rip actually here. <laughs> 
<laughs> so let's pull some quotes about his observations. This is a, when he was in a museum in Florence, and he is seeing a collection about the Etruscan people, which I won't even, based on his own summary, it's not something I remember from history class, but it, it's before Ro- Roman civilization, like I think probably even pre-Egyptian, pre, we're talking 10,000 BC plus, probably, roughly. Again, feel free to fact check that, I don't know. Yeah. But he's, he's reflecting on them and their, the exhibition of these people. He says things like, and I'm just going to jump around some quotes. He says, they were not just brutes nor cavemen because they lived in the days before Homer. They were men alive and alert, having their own complex forms of expression. Okay, how do you know that? Let's just keep going. Um, And then he mentions, but because one culture wipes out another as completely as possible, in those dim days there were invasions, invasion after invasion, no doubt, from the wild north on foot, from the old cultured Aegean basin and ships. Men kept on coming and kept on coming. Strangers. So, okay. That's how they get rid of each other. Then he says, but there were two deep emotions or culture rhythms which persisted in all of this confusion. And one was some old, old Italian rhythm of life belonging to the soil, which invaded every invader. And the other was the old cosmic consciousness or culture principle of the prehistoric Mediterranean, particularly of the Eastern Mediterranean. Man is always trying to be conscious of the cosmos, the cosmos of life and passion and feeling, desire and death and despair, as well as of physical phenomena, which is to say there are millions of worlds, whole cosmic worlds, to us yet unborn. So you go ahead and explain that to me, and <laughs> and then I'll just sit here and uh, take it. I, my thoughts on this quote are as varied as the quote itself. Um, and that was from two paragraphs to be fair. I I cut out a chunk in the middle now granted. And that's kind of a unique section because he's not so much in a place as he's just like riffing on history and his view of the Italians, but there's enough contradictions within that and enough things left unsaid that if you went into this for a philosophical treatise, I think it would be a frustrating read. If you went into it for kind of a, a really insightful in terms of just writer uh, characteristics and writer ability, just a good writer who can kind of spin a yarn. It, it has some intrigue to it. I think his thoughts are, they're not totally digressive or something. He's got some ideas, mm-hmm. but I just think if you put it up against like disciplinary checks, it would fail almost all of them. So I don't really know how to situate his thinking. I'm not yeah. really sure what it accomplishes other than a pretty, the writing itself is like pretty engaging. He knows how to move things. He knows how to push and pull. Like I think his, the sentences are interesting to read. And then you stop and you think the Italians were infected by an Italian rhythm before Italy existed. Like, what does that mean? He also, then he also earlier said that like race doesn't exist. And then immediately says that your bloodline determines your character traits. (laughs) It's just like, okay but then what is that then <laughs> if, if not i guess it's not skin adjacent it's it's something else something blood i don't whatever that means yeah. it just felt to me that there were moments especially in this chapter granted maybe not the others that just deserved expansion and i think he's just content to just let the mind go and just let it riff so that's the evidence i'd pulled for the for the bong comparison I don't even have a question for you. Feel free to just say whatever you want. Long riff it, you know, <laughs> just go nuts. I, whatever. That, um, that reminds me of um, the spinner and the monks, uh, that one that he wrote. And yeah, in yeah. that uh, you, you get this beautiful imagery and stuff. And he's like, 
describing these things, but then he starts bringing in like this, uh, this other discussion of like time and place. And you're like, where is this coming from? (laughs) Yeah. And it feels it's specific enough. It's specific enough to demand, I believe like disciplinary examination. Like you can't just start throwing off civilizations that had, that have like archeologically proven things probably about them and then just start discarding it or, it's like cherry picking at times, but it feels right. like he observes one thing and perhaps ignores or doesn't know another. And you know, I don't know if right. there's enough here to cross examine it in that way. I might be being obtuse or something, but it, the way he bandies about these words and these expressions, you would just hope that he has done that. And I just, from what I read, I'm just not convinced he did. And it kind of makes for fun reading. I don't know. It's like, I didn't hate reading it. I didn't, I didn't come away from it thinking what a fraud or something, but right. I also thought that this is such a weird text. Just weird. <laughs> yeah. Such an odd experience to read it. It's really freestyling to me. At least that's how it felt. I think odd is is a great way to describe some of the thoughts in the stories. Not stories, but in, in his writing in these pieces. Yeah. yeah. And I even, granted, in these reviews, we'll try not to. We're not going full-blown you know, lit 101 class or whatever. I think by the end of that chapter, he would have some answers to the things I even brought up just now. Not all of them, though, but the, he does expand on the this conscious, cosmic consciousness idea, this like pre-religion. So, you know, I, I don't want to fully paint with too broad or generalize him too much, paint with too broad a brush, because he does address some of these things. But there were enough ideas in there that if you're unwilling to go along, it this would be an incredibly frustrating thing to read, I think. It's, Even baffling. It's interesting to the way that so the the comment that he made about the the Italian lifestyle, right? Or whatever. In the soil. Yeah. They're the only civilization that has any connection to the soil. Yeah. <laughs> and that that's actually, mean? <laughs> he actually plays on that in the other three pieces too. That he does. that he the does. Italians are so earthy. Yes, he does portray them as kind of a people of the, they're kind of crouched over, huddled near the ground. They're almost like have this weird attachment to the, to the soil. Yeah. I read that as kind of, in the other story, I read that as kind of a critique almost. And then he's so sort of, um, is pr- primitivizing a word. He's making them seem yeah. very primitive. He's yeah. purposefully playing up the sort of basic nature of their society, basic in a, in a, negative connotative way let's get get me out of this quote as soon as possible man at any time just take over the pod because i'm not even sure what to say again it fascinated me but i'm not sure i have some final concluding point here what what quotes did you find insightful or interesting uh sure uh i pulled from uh the spinner and the monks which actually was my favorite of the three okay Um, i like the woman one but yeah oh yeah okay yeah um so the spinner and the monks and i put um Women glanced down at me from the top of the flights of steps. Old men stood half turning, half crouching under the dark shadows of the walls to stare. It was as if the strange creatures of the undershadow were looking at me. I was of another element. So this mm-hmm. kind of plays on what we were just discussing with like the earthiness of them. Um, it also kind of ties in with my D&D analogy in that oh, yeah. like, right, yeah. it, it creates an almost Tolkien-esque feel, right? Um so uh, I chose this quote because it shows just how 
how he can uh, turn a phrase to create a, a visual for you, right? You're, you're imagining these things very clearly. Um, mm-hmm. And it's yeah. an interesting way to describe people <laughs> too, but also it shows his, his perception and, and kind of showing that he is, he feels like an outsider to them, right? Yeah. Cause he is, he's a foreigner in a foreign land. Um, but that he is of another element. That means he does not feel as close to the earth. He is not on the same, in the same realm as them. And he also kind of, he plays with that idea in the other pieces as well, especially with like Ilduro, where he mm-hmm, compares yeah. Ilduro to like one of Pan, like to Pan, right? Um, yes, and, yeah. And to satyrs and other things that are uh, like demigods and gods. So still positive, right? That sounds like a positive. This description kind of sounds like a negative, the one that I just read. But then he yeah. compares him to a god, but then he says that he's like kind of basic almost, right? Um, in that he's he's primitive, as you said, but then he kind of makes it seem good <laughs> at the same time. It's kind of confusing yeah. at times, like whether how he actually feels about this. Maybe he's just, he admires them for um, how earthy and how in tune with nature they are. But also he kind of is like, well, that's not civilized in a way, perhaps. And he's he's not afraid. I know you mentioned the pan thing. He's not afraid to crank he will crank the rhetoric up to just 11 in yeah. terms of the, the not even excessiveness of it, but just of the things he's evoking and the yeah. imagery he's playing with. I'll quickly throw on my quote from 11. I really enjoyed this. He's describing this woman who's in a church and she's, um, I believe, just spinning a yarn. She's just yeah. sewing or something. He describes her as, she went on with her tail looking at me wonderfully. She seemed like the creation, capital C, like the beginning of the world, the first morning. Her eyes were like the first morning of the world, so ageless. So she stood in the sunshine and on the little platform, old and yet like the morning, erect and solitary, sun-colored, sun-discolored, whilst I sat at her elbow like a piece of night and moonshine, stood smiling into her eyes, afraid lest she should deny me my existence. It's just, it's dense, it's grandiose in the most grandiose way. It Mm -hmm. is quite beautiful. I don't know if I come out of it having a clear idea other than his kind of subservience. He's in awe of this like person's bright existence, I mean, burning like the sun or something. It's just such, I, I don't know. I, I almost want to say melodramatic. It doesn't hit me as melodrama though. It doesn't, it feels elevated, but in a way that's reverential. And I guess right. that's how it escapes the melodrama tag or something. And so it feels almost like this religious experience he's having. I mean, evoking creation and stuff, it adds to that in an obvious way. But he's he's just not afraid to get cosmic, I guess, in his descriptions. He really does commit in the writing. Like it doesn't, it never feels like he's holding back. And I think the other thing I wanted to mention in that is that he's quite circular and repetitive, but not in ways that bothered me because he feels like he's stunned by his own revelations. It feels mm-hmm. like... Yeah, I guess it does feel very stream of consciousness then. That that would be the tag. It's just he feels like he's undergoing the realization as he writes and he just keeps it in there. So yeah. in that way, it feels kind of honest too. Yeah, I, that was um, something that I wondered about um, after I finished reading was whether you thought the uh, some of the ideas were a bit too repetitive. Um, because I didn't. When yeah. I read it, I, I, I was like, okay, yeah, I... I I was seeing like with the the dove and the eagle and and the idea of flight and height 
in this particular mm-hmm. story. Um, and he plays with that throughout. That was something that, you know, it was very obvious. And I was just wondering whether it had bothered you because I know how you dislike repetition at times. No, I th- I think it because his tone was so stunned at just the life happening around him, though, not always for the better. Like some of his descriptions of the Italians, if we situated that historically, he might have just been a straight up racist. Like, I, I think in terms of the history of whiteness, like I think Italians were not considered white at that. T- anyway, he ah. like there's some real I that Wikipedia section made a lot of sense to me is all I'm saying. <laughs> like <laughs> when I saw those accusations, I was like, yeah, like there's there's some tinge stuff in here. And again, especially when you look at how what Italian and Italian American means over time. Um, anyway, things that again, I don't we don't have the background, nor is it our mission here to explore that. But it's worth saying it because the descriptions in here speak that to me. Yeah. But no, I think it, it because it all felt so in awe of itself. He feels in awe of himself when he's writing and that he, the world is unveiling itself almost to him. And it's like blowing his mind. It doesn't bother me to be circular or to repeat certain things in certain moments. Like, I don't, I don't mind being wrapped around like that. It makes sense, actually. That's kind of how the mind works. Sometimes you have to say something just to even believe that it was there or something. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to repeat it just to believe it happened or that it was real. It's kind of how memory can play with you too. So yeah. no, I, I didn't find it to be bothersome at all. Cool. I, I didn't find it bothersome either. Yeah, and um, yeah. what I liked about the quote that you pulled too was um, it kind of played on my quote in that the, the power of these people over him and also the otherness that he feels with them. Right. right? Yes. She has the power to deny him existence. Like that's that's a godlike power. Um, so yeah, that's, yeah. I, I found that really interesting considering the other references to gods and well for him the uh, roman gods and stuff yeah yeah he was certainly seeking it any other quotes you want to throw out there yeah um i pulled another quote from the other writing uh called i believe john um so yeah it was just the name of the person yeah uh, it says he seems scarcely like a person with individual choice more like a creature under the influence of fate which was disintegrating the old life and precipitating him a fragment inconclusive into the new chaos um i chose this one because i thought that it was just a really interesting sentence <laughs> um so it's about john who um has this push and pull, right? If you read the story and he's um, been to America, he wants to go back to America, but he's got a life in Italy and all this other stuff. And this quote is just, it's, it's like your life choices almost are out of your hands. If you are trying to uh, follow the times almost, right? So it's, it's like this, idea that history is kind of like dying off culture tradition all this stuff is dying off in order for the person the individual to uh progress right for people to progress that means that they have to leave behind uh these things that have actually been historically really important to people so Mm -hmm. i thought that was a really interesting idea that he pulls into this um nonfiction piece he finds i think he he kind of situates him as this sort of pathetic figure, doesn't he? Yeah. Isn't that yeah. how you kind of read him? Like yeah. to, not to be envied in any way. He sort of cast off and is stuck between worlds or something. Right. There'd be a fascinating way to read that too in, in relation to 
just America's role in the world and people's perception of it being a kind of new frontier for civilization to go, especially if he was English and he probably had strong feelings on that or thoughts on that. Yeah. yeah. It's, you could situate that story in a lot of different ways. I think. I, I agree. I thought that John was a really good, uh, I keep wanting to say story, but a really great piece. You know, they read that way. Honestly, <laughs> right? I, really I, you know, I think if academically were, we'd be misspeaking, but who cares? They <laughs> that way <laughs> really do feel like stories <laughs> yeah i mean we read the quotes hell people the cosmos <laughs> you know the dirt cosmos <laughs> we're out here in it this is not uh, this is not just somebody having a casual lunch in italy and talking about the tomato freshness or whatever this is a different <laughs> endeavor exactly let's, yeah. let's move into the other deep dive part though i don't think we'll take as long on this but this is the literary yeah. corner this is when we try and teach you the listener something about literature, fiction, in this case, nonfiction, rhetorical devices, whatever. And I'm pretty sure I'm pulling something we've pulled before, but it didn't register in my mind. So I don't know if we have. And that's just travel book or kind of a travelogue. Uh, I'll read what that is from the Penguin Literary Dictionary. Travel book is a neglected and much varied genre of great antiquity to which many famous, more or less professional or full-time writers have contributed, but which has also been enriched by a number of occasional writers, which makes it kind of unique. That's me editorializing because a lot of famous travelogues aren't written by writers. They're like by pirates and shit right? <laughs> or right. adventurers, whatever. The genre subsumes works of exploration and adventure, as well as guides and accounts of sojourns in foreign lands. Some of the earliest records of travels come from Egypt, and there's some from China they mentioned too. In the last half of the 16th century, a number of accounts of exploratory journeys begin to appear in Europe, and then because of colonialization, that continues. Right. And then in the 19th and 20th centuries, there was a positive flood of one sort and another, which shows no signs of abating. And a lot of that is like vacation-y travel to to learn about yourself literature it's not so much go to a place well it's always go to a place and experience something new mm -hmm. but it's no longer go to a place because no one ever has been before it's not right. it doesn't have that same exotic exoticism about it where they're trying to uncover something it's more personal and psychological like mm -hmm. i went to italy to make pasta for two years, but it really taught me about myself that it's like that kind of stuff. You know, it's not really so much about the externals. It's more about the internals, so right. to speak. Did you find this to be compelling as a travel book? I, I don't even know if I did. I think if I situated it historically, it actually would open up in a huge way again, mm -hmm. maybe in a racist way. Uh, I guess t TBD, who knows? I'll let the historians <laughs> fight that fight out or like whatever. Again, I know nothing about DH Lawrence before this, so I, it's not my place to say, but yeah, I think his observations are certainly tinged and quite intense. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, it didn't, it doesn't tell me anything about modern Italy, of course, nor should it. Did you find it compelling right. in that way? Um, I thought that it was descriptive of the towns that he was in and the people that he encountered. True. Um, True. But the way that I read it was more of, um, I guess, the the latter part of the the travel book in that it was more of like musings and uh, deeper yeah. understanding of his own psyche. That's yeah, like ruminations on human nature. Yeah, it just it just goes all over, but. And, it, and then in some ways, it, it, it expands and contracts in these crazy ways because then he'll contract and it'll be this hyper-focused description of this woman sewing. Right. <laughs> and so it's just, 
Yeah, I don't. It's very odd as a travel book. It's undeniably so because that's just what he was doing. But yeah, is it is such a striking example. It really contrasts with the Darwin stuff we just encountered mm-hmm. and that English dude hack loot, and it just. Yeah, it really stands apart from those. It did not read to me like those uh, hardly at all. I agree. And, you know, we enjoyed uh, the Darwin ones for his ability to describe some of the landscape. But like this is like literary to a T for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, far more dense. No question. And yeah, anytime you say a person is like creation, you're got to you're on one. So (laughs) you got to be along for that journey. Let's conclude our review with the two-part review segment then, Amanda. I think we're ready. Actually, I don't even know if I'm ready, but we're going to do it anyway. (laughs) We'll begin with an easy part. This is the Russell French in Memoriam, So What's Good About It segment. This is when we give genuine praise or enthusiasm to a work. I'll do it first this week. I don't mind. I just like the way he really sinks into his descriptions. Like the text kind of, the ideas kind of envelop you, Mm -hmm. even though it becomes kind of circular like we covered in the quote. It's still well-observed and it's so enrapturing. And again, you can tell... Maybe he was faking it. I seriously doubt it. But he seems so be- bewitched by his own thoughts that it's kind of just fun to be a part of it. He fixates on really intimate things and makes you a part of it. And yeah, I just thought the d- descriptions were great across the board. I, I agree. So I also said that uh, it's wonderfully descriptive and it's got interesting comparisons mm-hmm throughout um and he does kind of harp on certain comparisons but he also introduces new ones which i found really interesting and it reads like fiction rather than yeah. non-fiction yeah. which i enjoyed and that's in our i think you and i both have a preference and a, an eye and an ear for that so yeah. i think we we both line up in the prefer to read fiction group though certainly i mean not exclusively at least i can't only speak for myself but yeah <laughs> yeah no, i think that's where our preferences and kind of our enjoyment lies so it, and it had that feeling for sure no hack loot for example no no thanks <laughs> our best sorry hack loot. <laughs> let's end with the official ratings then we like to rate on a three tiered system and it's basically a yes no or a maybe amanda why don't you go first this week should they read this should they not or should they maybe read it i said yes a hundred percent you should read it um dh lawrence you know is not necessarily canonized at least not in the secondary education program yeah um yeah. although i did get to read um his novel kind right, of right right I just didn't. Uh, <laughs> I had the opportunity, Amanda. I had the opportunity. The I still have it, actually. Maybe I'll crack it open again. Um, but the writing is so wonderfully done, and his style is so crisp, and he's very focused. And I cannot harp enough. Like, I, I don't really care for nonfiction a lot of the time. Like, I'll read nonfiction as far as, as long as it's written like this, where I am tricked almost into thinking that it's fiction, um, where there's pacing and there's actual like imagery and there are similes and metaphors and motifs, right? Things that you don't necessarily expect in nonfiction writing. Um, he does all of this. So if you don't care for nonfiction, Hey, you can read this and and trick yourself into thinking that you're reading fiction. If you do like nonfiction, I think that it's an interesting read from um, the perspective of a travel book. Like what are his observations? And also if you're interested in psychology, this is a great read for 
delving into his thoughts and philosophies. Yeah, certainly. I I feel strongly about a maybe on this one. I would say listeners maybe read this, but I can also say, though this is becoming a cop-out of a final review, you've heard enough from us to probably make the determination. That's why I feel good about maybe. Mm-hmm. I am a yes, I'm happy I read this and I'm intrigued. I will probably dive into something of his again in the future and who knows when, but it was enough for me to remember him and then think that's probably something I should go into at some point because it, it intrigued me you know, significantly. As a recommendation to a person on the street, I think it's a good maybe for me. I don't. There's enough that is digressive about it and philosophical to just be off-putting. I could see to some people, mm-hmm. it's just just unfocused enough in its overall cohesion to put people off. Then again, there's so much you can revel in in just the moment to moment. This guy is just just so deeply in it. His, his third eye is open and he is just like observing whatever comes into his being. So, and for that way, it, it, or in that way, rather, it felt really quite fascinating, almost emotional at times, or just really intimate, I guess yeah. you could say. And I, I admired all of that about it. So I, I'd like to push this to a yes. I think a maybe is a better representation of my own experience with it. I did, I did have my pauses and thought, "What the hell is he on about right now?" Or what? <laughs> and is, what is this happening? Uh, but, and I think that's fair though, and that can be part of a great read too. Mm-hmm. I don't think a good read doesn't mean something you gloss over and your brain, you know, shuts down or what have you. I think you and I are both pretty on record about enjoying complex things, and right. so. Yeah, I think I'm going to stick with maybe, but I'm glad you said yes, and I think we gave a really thorough depiction of it too. Any final thoughts on D.H. Lawrence or this collection before we close out? Um, I don't think so. I think I, I want to read some more of his nonfiction. So yeah, my, one of my old roommates wrote his master's thesis on him, so now I have to text him and ask him like, give me the best stuff. Just mm-hmm. hit me with one or two quick things. I think the Lady Chatterleys is kind of considered his maybe an opus of sorts. So mm-hmm. I'll have to ask him. Next week, we have coming up Catherine Mansfield, another writer I have zero familiarity with, and it looks like a collection of short stories, so we will officially and formally be back into the world of fiction next week. And until that time, we'll see you between the classics. 